Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim, and I'm a member here. Today our reading is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Tim. Would you pray with me as we ask God's help today? Father, we ask that you would use your word to shine a light in our lives, in the life of our church. God, would you make yourself known to us this morning? Would you use this passage to make us more like Jesus? And, and even more than that, to give us a sense of what it means that he is truly living in each of us by faith. We, these are the things we ask you today in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something about being a part of a family that makes us sort of protective of one another, uh, at least in a, in a good sense, and in a, hopefully it does, at least. Uh, but even if you know all the faults, for instance, and sin tendencies of your parents or your siblings or even your children, even if you could predict to a T all the ways that they tend to frustrate or upset you, and you may even go through hard times where there's major strain in your relationship, but the minute the wrong person starts to point out all those flaws in your family member, often will say, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. Right? Uh, we even use a phrase in this situation, that's my flesh and blood you're talking about. You've heard this? As if to say, show some respect here, right? In other words, there, there is something about that person's body, my sister, my mother, my child, there's something about their body and the blood flowing through their body that links them with me. We share something in common. We share something deep and personal. We're family. And for that reason, it's impossible for, for someone outside the family to, to offend them without also offending me. I don't know, maybe this is just an Italian thing. Uh, but there is something to it, I'm convinced, and we're going to see today um, the same is true in the body of Christ. There is something within each of us, in this case in a spiritual sense, that ought to change the way we think about one another, ought to change the way we relate to one another, and also in a sense has, has this effect of sort of keeping us together, even through trials and hardships and conflict. 
Now, throughout this letter, we've seen the Galatians have been very confused about what God's family is and how people get in and stay in the family. Now, they were Gentiles, which means they were not Jewish. They had no ties to the nation of Israel until Paul had come. He preached the gospel to them, and then he gathered those of them who believed in Jesus into these local churches that he's writing to. But then a group of Jewish Christian missionaries came along, and Paul says he, they bewitched the churches into thinking that the earthly nation of Israel was actually God's family. And therefore, as Gentile believers, it wasn't enough that they believed in Jesus. They also had to get circumcised, and they also had to live under the Old Testament law. And for Paul, this meant that the Galatian churches had turned from God altogether, that they had embraced a false gospel. And since the beginning of chapter 3, he's been untangling all their confusion about God's family. And he's been doing that by explaining that, no, Christ and his church are the ultimate fulfillment of Israel and God's promise to Abraham and the entire Old Testament. He's been saying God is now creating a whole new kind of spiritual family that includes people of all different nations, and he's creating this family in his son. Uh, he even clarified back in chapter 3 that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And otherwise, it's not, it's not just the Jews who are born into that lineage. In fact, those who are born Jewish are not actually in this new kind of spiritual family automatically. They're not. They also have to be justified by faith as well. And now, Paul told us a couple weeks ago, there is neither Jew nor Greek, he told us. We are all now becoming one in Christ. Last week, after lamenting just how far these Galatians had wandered off, the last thing Paul said was this. He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And that phrase will become particularly important today. We're going to see that when Paul is worried about laboring over the Galatians in vain, he's not just talking about laboring in the sense of working, like manual labor. No, he's talking about giving spiritual birth, as in the Galatians might not be born again. They might not be sons by faith. They might not be in this spiritual family even. In our passage today, we get a glimpse into Paul's relationship with these churches in Galatia, the clearest glimpse we get in the book. And for the first time in the book, it becomes very clear that they were in open conflict. Paul recalls a time when they did him no harm here, which seems to suggest that since then, they actually had been doing him harm, at least in some way. And he also wonders why they now see him as an enemy. It could be, some scholars even think, that the, the Galatians could have been actively persecuting, even harming Paul in some way. It's hard to say exactly, uh, but it is safe to say, based on what we see here, that their relationship was broken. In our passage today, Paul makes an appeal to them. He's trying to help them, and he's trying to repair their relationship. He starts this appeal in verse 12 by saying, brothers, using family language again, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am 
for I have also become as you are. Now, if you, again, if you haven't been tracking with us through this series, that might sound really confusing. What is he talking about? But remember, again, Paul used to actually hold an office in the nation of Israel. He was a Pharisee, but he told us back in chapter 2 that that Paul was crucified with Christ. It was no longer he who lived, but Christ who lived in him. And the life he now lived in the flesh, he lived by faith in the Son of God. In chapter 1, he even referred back to his life as a Pharisee as, quote, his former life in Judaism. In that sense, what Paul means here is that he kind of became like a Gentile. He was cut off from the earthly nation of Israel. So what Paul's basically saying is, look, I left the nation of Israel to come bring the gospel to you. Now, you're turning from God to go be part of the nation of Israel. No, you're going the wrong way, he's saying. You, you need to turn around. You need to keep coming. You need to become like me. That is, you need to cut ties with the nation of Israel. Don't worry about that. You need to stop living under the law like I did so that you can become a part of this new spiritual family by faith like I have. Paul seemed to think that becoming like him in this way was necessary for their relationship to be repaired. And that, in particular, is what I think we need to keep an eye on today. In particular, what is the key to repairing broken relationships in the body of Christ. Uh, when we hear about broken relationships in the life of our church, how should we handle those? Is there anything unique or particular about the spiritual nature of our fellowship in the body of Christ that might help us to repair our relationships? Today, Paul's going to dissect his relationship with these churches in Galatia, and in particular, he's going to consider how it used to work, why that changed, and how to fix it. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We're going to look at these things. We're going to try and unpack the passage, then toward the end, we'll apply it together to our, li excuse me, to our lives today. So first, here's how their relationship used to work. Here's a little summary of it. When the Galatians had no regard for their flesh, they received Paul as if he was Christ. Now, Notice Paul mentions that it was because of a bodily ailment that he even first came to preach the gospel in Galatia. So that's all he says, and it's, it's kind of hard to know what the specific circumstance is, but apparently he was not well in some sort of physical bodily way. A at first, that may seem like sort of an insignificant detail here, but in light of everything Paul's been saying about the dangers of relying on our flesh, that is just our own bodily life, and, and the transformative power of relying on Christ's flesh, that is his crucified, resurrected body, we need to pay attention here. Paul's actually doing something very interesting. Paul is pointing out that back when these, they first met, back when at least he thought they were trusting in, they put their faith in Christ's crucified flesh, back then they were eager to care for him even when he came to them with a weakness in his flesh. And notice, he said, this is a weakness that was a trial to you, he says. This, this would have been some sort of a burden to the members of these churches, his ailment. But he points out, you did not, uh, sorry, you did me no wrong back then, right? You did not despise me or scorn me or despise me back then. In fact, he says, you received me as an angel of God, and he says, as Christ Jesus, you received me. 
And this is so significant. Remember, his entire point is that God's creating this new spiritual family in Christ. And when we stop relying on our flesh and start relying on his, Christ lives through us. That's the whole point in the letter. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, back then, that whole spiritual equation seemed to be working quite well. Back then, neither of us were concerned about our flesh. Mine was weak. It was even a burden to you. But, but you didn't despise me then. In fact, you cared for me as if I was Christ because I, I kind of am, right? He's living through me by faith in a way. Notice Paul even says that the Galatians back then were ready to sacrifice their flesh in order to care for him and his. He says, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, many scholars think that whatever bodily ailment Paul had had to do something with his vision. It may have been some sort of a, an extreme sort of cataract or something like this, but he was, could, have, could have very well been visually impaired, and that might be what he means here. You were ready to pluck out your eye if, I, if it meant that I could have had working eyes. So this is how their relationship used to work, back when neither of them were relying on their flesh. Even when Paul was weak, they received and cared for him as if he was Christ. And here's why that changed. Part two, a little summary. When the Galatians started relying on their flesh, Paul became their enemy all of a sudden. Now, it's clear this mutual affection changed because as Paul reflects on how things used to be, he says in verse 15, what has become of your blessedness? In other words, what happened? What, what changed? Why, why aren't you treating me this way anymore? And then in verse 16, he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, I'm, I'm telling you the same gospel I came to you with back then when I had the bodily ailment. And now what's changed? All of a sudden, I'm your enemy? for that same reason of telling you the truth. So whatever changed, Paul is assuming that for the Galatians, it had to do with his words. He was telling them the truth in a way they did not like. And then in verse 17, he takes a stab at what he thinks caused this whole breakdown in their relationship. And he seems to think it has to do with these missionaries who came along and their teaching. Now, these, again, would be the same missionaries he mentioned back in chapter 1 who were troubling the Galatians and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. These are the same missionaries he suggested in chapter 2 had bewitched them. And here in verse 17, he says that they, these missionaries, make much of you but for no good purpose. And here's the key. He says, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. And here's the point of that. This is really important. Paul is saying that these Jewish Christian missionaries had sort of a vested interest in the nation of Israel being the family of God. That played to their favor because it was, if it was, then they could sort of exclude people from every other nation until or unless they got circumcised, started living under the law like they did. And this would have put Jews basically in the family of, of, of God on, on another level. 
It, it would have put them in the top tier of God's family, as if they had, you know, kind of always been a part of God's family, and as if they, if you can imagine, were actually born into God's family. You could see why that would be problematic. They were shutting Gentiles out, or at least trying to, so that those Gentiles made much of them. Now, that may seem petty to you, like this is just sort of ethnic kind of pride or something like this, but in light of the theology behind all of this, it's not petty at all. And for Paul, this is why the entire gospel is at stake in this one issue, because Jews were not actually a part of this new spiritual family just because they were born Jews, just because they were circumcised or living under the law. That undermined the whole thing. If that were true, Paul has already told us that Christ died for no purpose. And so Paul is basically saying, listen, you guys need to become like me in that you need to be crucified in the flesh. You need to be humbled. You need to be weak in your flesh, like, right, like kind of like Christ when he came and he subjected himself to all kinds of weakness and beating and trials, right? Paul had no confidence in his flesh because all of his confidence was in the resurrected Christ. Meanwhile, these missionaries were saying, you get to become like us. And what they meant by that was, you get to be strong now. You get to be obedient. You get to be capable people of God like, like us, like we have been. They had tons of confidence in their flesh. Their entire standing with God depended on it, according to them. And that is what changed the Galatians' relationship with Paul. As soon as they were influenced by these missionaries, as soon as they started relying on their flesh in this way, all of a sudden the spiritual equation changed. They now saw Paul not as a weak man in whom Christ was living. They saw Paul as an enemy whose gospel was now a threat. And here's what can fix that, part three. When Christ is formed in the Galatians, their family relationship can be repaired when Christ is formed in them. Verse 18, Paul says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am with you. I think we're supposed to take that as sort of a, a passive, aggressive comment, like a little snarky dig. He's basically saying, hey, it was great when you actually cared for me back then. That was good for a good purpose. I don't know why that changed why I left, right? And then he addresses and describes the Galatians, notice, according to his desire for them. And first, he calls them his little children. Now, again, by now, this should not be lost on us. That is not just how Paul refers to all Christians. This whole letter is about God's new spiritual family, and this is actually, the whole, much of the New Testament is, and this is actually why people talk to, of, of each other as brothers, sisters, children in this way throughout it. But in, in particular here, Paul is referring back to his personal role in helping them come to faith in Christ and to become sons in this way. In fact, notice he calls them his little children for whom he is again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. He's referring to himself, in a sense here, almost as a kind of spiritual mother to these churches who's giving birth to them. And then he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. 
for I am perplexed about you. So for Paul, the solution ideally would have involved intimate in-person communication. He seems to at least be suspicious. They might not be treating him this way if they were looking him in the eyes, which I do think tells us something about the importance of real face-to-face fellowship in the body of Christ. But clearly, it was going to take more than just meeting up and talking through this to fix it. Uh, This was a spiritual crisis that they were navigating together. And throughout this letter, Paul has been arguing again that for all people of, of all nations and all statuses, it is faith in Christ that brings our life in the flesh to an end as if we've been crucified with him. It is faith in Christ that gives us access to the spirit of God's son who then lives in us and makes us sons. Faith in Christ is what justifies us of our sins and sets us free from the law. It is by faith that we were adopted in Christ and God became our father as well. Faith in Christ is what supersedes our earthly identities and unites all people in this new spiritual family. God is doing all of this through Christ living in us as we rely on his crucified flesh. And so faith in Christ, relying on Christ is the key to our deliverance. It is the key to our spiritual life and vitality. It is the key to this entire spiritual family, the key to our mission and purpose in the world. Faith in God's crucified son is the key to God's entire redemptive plan. And here we see it is also the key for repairing broken relationships in the body of Christ. This is the claim I'm convinced in our passage today. Paul is pleading with the Galatians, Let's get back to treating one another as if Christ is living in us. This is what he wants. This is what he's trying to get done here. He's saying, listen, that's how it used to work back when at least I thought you were relying on Christ's flesh. That's what changed when these missionaries came up and convinced you to start relying on yours. All of a sudden, I'm your enemy now, not your brother. And that's what I'm in labor for yet again, because this is the only way we can be reconciled as brothers. You need to become like me. You need to be crucified in the flesh with Christ living through you by faith, because we will never love one another that way again. If Christ is not formed in you. Now, a number of you have asked a really good question, even in the past three or four weeks. Uh, and that is, well, based on what Paul's saying here, uh, does he seem to think that we can lose our salvation? And at first, you might think it, it seems like he actually does. Uh, because on one hand, he does speak very confidently as if he knows that these Galatians at least used to be Christians. In chapter 3, verse 26, he said, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You are. It seems very confident. But then he also says, you've turned from God. You've embraced a false gospel. You've been bewitched. You're nullifying the grace of God. right?" And so it almost seems as if Paul is concerned that maybe they have lost their salvation until we get to last week's passage. And this week's passage. Last week, again, he said, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in in vain, which means whatever he thought may have happened when they came to faith in Christ, apparently it it didn't actually happen. It was a a stillbirth, if you will, laboring in vain. 
And this week he even says he is again in the anguish of childbirth, back to the beginning, until Christ is formed in them. In other words, for Paul, the jury is still out as to whether or not these Galatians were actually in Christ. Now, he knows that anyone can be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He knows that. He's just not quite sure if they have been. He even says here, he's perplexed by them. He's perplexed. So I think part of the problem and, and where our confusion tends to come these days is that we tend to assume that because the grounds of our assurance of salvation are certain and sure, because anyone can be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we then assume that as soon as someone professes faith in Christ, we can be absolutely certain, of course, they're a Christian, they're going to go to heaven, we can just stamp it, seal it, and it's all done. And that's just not how Paul thinks about salvation. It's not. We're, we're a little bit too quick to hand out assurance of salvation to specific people, kind of like, like free candy. We hand it out, you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to go to heaven. We're too quick. For Paul, time is an essential ingredient to our assurance of salvation. Not enough just to profess the faith and say that we have it. Think of the parable of the sower. Not all the seeds end up multiplying. They, some of them even look like they grow, but over time they prove not to. Uh, if we're truly in Christ, we will continue, we will endure by that. And in that sense, time will tell, right? But in the meantime, how we treat the rest of the body is one of the greatest indicators. My best sense is that Paul was at least conflicted about their salvation, if not doubting it. And here we learn one of the hugest reasons for his doubt is the way they were treating him. So with all that in mind, drawing on our passage, I just want to consider three signs that Christ is living in us. And I want you to notice all three of these signs have to do with the way we treat our brothers. Just a couple qualifications before we jump in here. Uh, when I say brothers, I mean fellow members of Christ's body. So certainly, uh, most importantly, the members of our church, uh, also the members of other churches that are closely connected to our church, Grace Church and Racine, the Crossways, Pillar Network churches, and then also leaders and, and, and missionaries that are involved in our church, like Paul. My point is to be a brother in this sense means to be an actual member of God's new spiritual family, which clearly involved real and committed relationships with other specific Christians. So if we're, if we're living an isolated life as a Christian with no real commitment or obligation to any particular group of people, which is unfortunately very common today, we're kind of already at a deficit here. And so step one, I think, is actually to join, to, to, to link your lives with this new spiritual body, link your lives to the members of a, of a new and a real spiritual church like the one we're at today. And then I also want to make a, a, another qualification. Ladies, you're going to hear me talking about how we treat our brothers. And you might be wondering, well, what does this mean for me? How, how do I fit into this or not? Am I being excluded here? I want to remind you, we are, there's no longer male or female but we are all one in Christ. This new spiritual family is in him. And therefore, because God's son is living in you, in that sense, we've said this before, you are a son yourself. You have his son status. And therefore, you're included in this brother. By the way, when you read the New Testament, and he's only talking about brothers throughout much of it, it it's tempting to think that's a dig. You're trying to be excluded. You're not. You're included in that. 
but it's just that the family is, is in Christ, in the Son. So that's, this is not meant to exclude anyone. With those qualifications out of the way, if Christ is living in us, first, number one, we will care for our brothers even when their flesh is weak. Even when their flesh is weak. There's something very interesting and peculiar even about Jesus that really helps uh, for us to understand here. So on one hand, Jesus is all-powerful. He's eternal. He's immortal. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. On the other hand, when he came to this world, in many ways, he was actually quite weak. At least by the standards of this world, he was weak. Uh, He did not come as a mighty warrior king with an empire and army that were unrivaled in this world. He did not come demanding that everyone bow and respect him at all. Uh, Now, he was that mighty, and he did have every right to be respected in that way, but he came as a poor, unassuming, many would say weak, rabbi with a small, insignificant group of followers. He came to be scorned to be despised, to be rejected by those who were inferior to him in every conceivable way. And that was, by the way, not just a peripheral detail in his redemptive plan. This this was his redemptive plan. Christ came to show us that in this world, weakness is not a weakness. In this world, weakness is the way. And here's what this means for us. It means that when he, that Christ, is living in us, when our fellowship is based on confidence in in his flesh, crucified flesh, rather than in our flesh, we will not scorn or despise or reject those whose flesh is weak. We will care for them. We will love them. Because this is just, this is what Christ does. This is how Christ operates, and and Christ is living both in them and in us. So what does it mean that our flesh would be weak? Well, it means that the bodily lives we live and and our capacities, our limitations in those bodily lives, are they're evident. (laughs) You can see them. We don't have what it takes. In in some cases, our limitations are are even burdensome to other people. Uh, For instance, when we don't have as much training or education as all the experts in the world, Uh, When we don't fit into all the status groups that people tend to respect and admire in the world, or, or even specifically when we do have physical health needs that require us uh, to, to ask for people's time and attention, if our faith and our fellowship are basically just about us trying to make the best possible showing in our flesh, then we'll have no use for those whose bodily lives are weak in this way. Uh, We will have a church where everyone works as hard as they can possible to to, to hide these kinds of weaknesses. Uh, We will have a church where ordinary human weaknesses that we all have will start to seem like a barrier to our success in life and in ministry. But if our faith and fellowship are rooted in the crucified, risen Jesus Christ, then we will welcome those who are less educated than us. We will love those who are, have far less status than we do in the world, sincerely. And we will care for those who are sick, who are injured, or who are just weak. And we won't see any of those things as a waste of our time. 
Because as Christ himself has told us in, in chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel, truly I say to you, he says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, he says, you did it to me. Clearly, according to Paul, he really meant that. He really did. Now, here's the cool thing. I see this all the time in, in the life of our church. It, it has been one of the most encouraging ways for me to see Christ at work in this world in my entire life. I, I, if I could say it this way, I'd say, I am not perplexed about you in the least. Members of our church, I see constantly helping one another with, with home projects, bringing meals, bearing burdens, supporting each other through trials, praying together. And, and this, is, this is not just something we, we always have to coordinate and, and plan and figure. This is just what Christ does in the life of our church as we rely together on his flesh as his body. So the truth is none of us will ever get this right every time. We will fail at this. There will be strain in our relationships as a result. But if and when we do fail, here's the point. Uh, we need to hear the truth of this gospel yet again. Uh, we need to repent of our, of our self-absorption. And we need to get back to loving our brothers as if they are Christ, even when their flesh is weak. Next, if Christ is living in us, number two, we will receive our brothers even when they tell us hard truths. Even when they tell us hard truths. Now, it's not an easy thing for Paul to confront the Galatians in this way, I'm sure. It was not a pleasant thing to endure the scorn and ridicule that came as a result, I'm sure. But Paul knew that the Galatians' confidence in Christ's flesh was the only path forward here. is the only path, and therefore he was willing to tell them when they turned from the truth of the gospel, he had the conviction even to clarify what the gospel really is and what that means for them as a local church. He didn't just let them wander off in this way. And so the first half, at least, of this application is this. We need the courage to tell one another hard spiritual truths as well. I'm convinced one of the most essential ingredients to the ongoing health of our church is this commitment to actually open our lives to one another in a meaningful, spiritual way such that these conversations can become normal, expected, even welcomed in our church. We might get good at doing this. That We might even seek out on our own, of our own volition, loving spiritual correction from other brothers and sisters in Christ, we would seek out the hard truths we need to hear but don't want to. Now, if that doesn't happen, before long, I'm convinced we will all start to pretend that we're strong in our flesh. Our church will become, in a sense, a religious dog and pony show, which is really just designed to prove to everyone how strong we are in our flesh. And so let's be kind, let's use wisdom, let's be patient with one another. Uh, let's assume that the log in our eye is bigger than the speck in our brother's eye, but if we see sinful tendencies in one another, or we see one another veering from the truth and power of the gospel, we need to love one another enough to actually talk about that. And when we do not do this, 
the truth is we're really denying the power of Christ in his gospel alive in us. When we do not do this, we are protecting and preserving our bodily lives and reputations in this world more so than our spiritual union that Christ died and bled to give us and to accomplish for us. And so are there hard but important truths that you have been avoiding saying in certain relationships? This is really hard. I, I know the fear. What if they will despise and scorn us? What if they will do us harm? What if the whole thing blows up? They leave our church. It's really messy. I, I totally get it. I, I feel those same fears as well. I would never wish that on our church. I pray that doesn't happen ever. And yet at the same time, what if Christ is not really formed in that person? What if this pattern of sin is, is actually evidence they're, they're not really a Christian? What if this conversation is what they really need for Christ to be formed in them? Or, at the very least, what if God just wants to use this conversation to sanctify them, to make them more like Jesus? We need to be willing to go there, to have those conversations. And here's the second half of this application. We also need to receive our brothers when they tell us hard truths, rather than just rejecting them and pushing them aside as if they're our enemies, almost as if Christ is living in them and he's telling us hard truths through them, right? And this part is really simple. I think this means let's not live in such a way that keeps the other members of our church at arm's length. Let's not live in such a way that gives people the impression we're always strong in our flesh and we're not going to let them see the weaknesses when they come up. Let's not get, live in such a way that resists real mutual accountability with the other members of our church. And so some specific takeaways for you today might be this. Uh, get baptized. Tell the whole world and this church that you've been crucified with Christ. Make that public. Um, become a member of the church. Stand up and tell this church that you believe in Jesus and that you're actually in Christ with them. Like, really? By name, in the flesh. Uh, join a small group. Develop those meaningful spiritual relationships over time where these conversations can be had. Or if you've done all those things, focus instead on living your everyday life as if these things are of ultimate, utmost spiritual importance. Lean into these. Give them your time and attention. Call an elder if you're actually ever feeling particularly weak or struggling with a certain sin or a conflict. I want to say that that's what we're here for. We're not just police trying to get people in trouble. We're, we're trying to be stewards of God's grace. We, we love you. And that's what we want to do is to bring the power of the gospel into that situation with you. Confess specific sins to specific people. Ask them to keep walking and praying with you, right? See, one of the greatest evidences that we are truly Christians is that we will actually live in this way. And one of the greatest evidences that we may not be Christians is if we refuse this and resist this at all costs. Here's uh, Proverbs chapter 18. Seems very helpful here. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 
Are you resistant to the words and admonition of others by default in this way? Now, none of us are expected to get this right every, every time. This is really hard, and the truth is we will fail at this. We absolutely will. But if and when we do, here again, what we need is to hear the truth of this gospel yet again. Uh, what we need is to turn and repent from our self-righteousness, and what we need is to get back to receiving our brothers as if they are Christ, even when they tell us hard truths. And finally, number three, if Christ is living in us, we will make much of our brothers rather than ourselves. We will make much of our brothers rather than ourselves. Notice, according to Paul, the primary motivation behind all of this sinful self-reliance in Galatia was certain people's desire to make much of themselves. That's where the whole thing went awry. That's where this was going off the rails. He clearly thinks these missionaries were shutting the Galatians out, and Gentiles in general, to make much of themselves. He clearly thinks the Galatians had turned from God when they tried to become like them, when they refused to displease them. Meanwhile, Paul wants the Galatians to become like him in a totally different way. He wants them to be crucified in their bodily lives, to give up their lives in the flesh. Soon he'll tell us he wants them to boast in Christ alone rather than boasting in their flesh and themselves. Now, in our day, far more so than in Paul's, I think, uh, it is almost always seen as a good and noble thing to sort of express ourselves, right? And to be, to be, to be true to ourselves and really ultimately to, to make much of ourselves. Uh, our favorite movies are filled with characters who do this unapologetically. Our social media feeds are filled with celebrities who do this professionally. Uh, increasingly, our highest offices of leadership are filled with people who do this unapologetically and shamelessly. If the first century city of Corinth was the city of philosophers and earthly wisdom, which it was known to be, modern America is the nation of marketers, doing whatever we need to, saying whatever we want to, and to make a good showing in the flesh. In many cases, we don't even consider it. Maybe this might be a bad thing. We, we do increasingly see this as almost a universally good thing. And, and unfortunately, too often, this has a, a way of affecting, even for us as Christians, the way we think about the church and what it means to be effective, to reach people. We give lots of weight to all the visible, measurable things that are super impressive in this world that seem to indicate, oh, we must be doing something right here. We overlook invisible spiritual qualities like character and integrity of our leaders and in favor of things like talent and style. And the results of this have been catastrophic in many, many churches. This happens all the time. And we are not immune from this kind of thing in our church. No church is immune from this. This is in, in many ways the fallout of, of the spirit of our age. We all want to be seen. We all want to be respected and revered. We all want to be part of something that makes much of us. 
At the very least today, as a result, many Christians would just love to have a church that at the very least just leaves them alone and lets them live their lives. Don't bother me. Don't ask anything of me. Listen, just plan happy services for me to enjoy on Sunday morning. It'll be great. Help me to express my spiritual self. Help me show the world my brand of spirituality and Christianity. But here's the point. For all these reasons... If we do live together in this way that Paul's encouraging, with the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of our life and our fellowship, if we do actually submit to one another and commit to one another as if Christ himself is living in us, then our church will shine as a bright, glorious light in this world. And that is exactly what local churches like ours are meant to be. The presence and power of Christ himself on the earth. This is one of the most profound implications of Paul's theology and much of the New Testament. is that within the body of Christ, when we despise any one member... It's as if, as if they are our enemy, or if we reject any one member as if we're superior to them, or if we resist any one member as if we're not accountable to them. The truth is we are despising, we are rejecting, and we are resisting Christ himself. But church, the opposite is just as true. The opposite is just as true. We will never, hear me, we will never experience the power of Christ more than when we live at peace among his people, resting entirely in the grace of his cross. Because when we love, receive, and care for one another in this way, for his purposes, we will be loving receiving and caring for Christ himself as if we are Christ himself and he is living through us. That is how we're supposed to treat one another in this new spiritual family of God that he is creating in the Son.